0: Great conversation. Love it. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Uh, we're entering now into our time of teaching, and, and we have a lot to get to today, so I'm just going to jump straight into it. Uh, would you pray with me as we ask God to just prepare our hearts and minds to hear his word and to hear it fresh and new that it might transform us? Father, uh, we are only standing here today. We only have blood running through our veins because uh, of you. Uh, We know that that Christ holds all things together. Each and every moment is a gift, and we thank you for that. We thank you for this community that we could come and uh, be a part of considering together, uh, that we don't have to walk through this life alone, that... um, Uh, that you have given us friends, that you've given us brothers and sisters in the faith, uh, and that you've given us your word. And we pray that you would open that word up to us, that we would be changed by it, that we would see ourselves and who we are more clearly, that we'd see you and who you are more clearly, and that we'd go out and consider others in our city more fully and more clearly because of who you are and who we know ourselves to be through your word. So we pray that now. We pray it mightily that your spirit come. Help us to sit now in the spirit and hear from you this morning. We pray this in the name of your son Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today we're talking about household codes and rules. So we're going to talk about wives and husbands and fathers and children and mothers uh, and slaves and masters, employees and bosses. We're going to talk about all those common life relationships and how to walk in Christ through those. Um, and primarily, we're, we call it, uh, this section of scripture, it's Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there with us. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the ends of the rows, have somebody pass those down to you. We're going to be looking at this together. So Colossians chapter 3, if you need to use the table of contents in the front of your Bible, there's no shame in that. So what, when we get here, what, what we're going to see is we're moving now into the place in Colossians where uh, the book of Colossians, as we've talked about, starts with this very cosmic picture, right? So if you haven't been with us, let's catch you up. This very cosmic picture. We've, we do three things at Sedaris. We look up and we consider who God is and, and who Christ is. And what we see in Colossians is this uh, just amazing, almost mind-bending picture of who Christ is, that he's not just a man that lived, that Jesus is not just a man that lived 2,000 years ago, but he actually has pre-existed with God the Father and God the Spirit in eternity past, and he was there at creation, and he made creation, and he created, and everything was in God's presence, but then sin entered the picture, and so the earth was separated from God in a way, and so even though heaven still exists, we are this sort of rebellious, closed-off portion of, of God's full presence known as the cosmos or the earth, the heaven and the earth, but God in his goodness doesn't want it to be that way. He wants to remove the cancer that is infecting us and our world, and he's doing that through Jesus. So, so we start by looking up in the book of Colossians. Um, it's the first couple chapters, and we see, wow, this Jesus Christ is way bigger than we thought, and what he's doing Is way more than just giving us nice fuzzies. He's literally putting the world back together again. And then in Colossians, what we see is Paul says, if that's true and you yourself are connected to Christ by faith, then you are something more than you thought that you were. This is what we call theological anthropology, meaning starting with God, we understand as human beings what we actually are. And oh my gosh, it's way more than a biological accident. And we just live out our days trying to maximize joy or pleasure. We are something much more. So that's, we look up, then we look in. And now what what we do, and Paul does in Colossians, is we start to look out. We consider others. Consider Christ, consider self, consider others. That's what we do at Sideris. Those are the three rhythms. And so now we're moving into this portion of scripture, which Ryan started two weeks ago. We had a two-week break and in this portion of Scripture, we will see what do what these household relationships look like for those of us who now see ourselves in light of who this cosmic Christ is. What does this mean for us in these most common of relationships? Now, you see, it's not just Christians who ask these questions. What does it mean to be a husband? What does it mean to be a wife? What does it mean to be a father or a mother? What does it mean to be a child? What does it mean to be an employee or to be a boss, an owner of a company? Everyone's asking these questions, and everyone was asking these questions 2,000 years ago when the letter to the Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Asia Minor. Everyone's always asking these questions. These are common human questions. What does it mean to be in relationship with these common familial relationships or household relationships? And it was a question And if we look at ancient literature, these sort of household codes, similar to the ones we'll read today, were written in all other types of of societal writings as well. We see the Greeks talking about, the Romans talking about, the Jewish community talking about these things, and we have them actually written down for us. But there's something very unique, though common, very unique about the Christian's answer to these questions. And we'll see... Those answers today. So, in one sense, they're very common, just like people are trying to ask those questions in our culture and answering them in certain ways. And something very unique about the way Christians ask and answer these questions. So, so let's start here by reading uh, what Ryan talked about two weeks ago in chapter f- three, starting in verse twelve. Uh, because we got to get some context here when we're reading the Word of God, we have to see these things in context. So, let's look at that chapter three. Verse 12. So big three, if you're looking in your Bible, small 12. Here's here's what it says. Put on then, because of everything that Christ has done for you, because he's put to death your sin, because you're no longer enslaved to it, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why do you think we're doing this this morning? With thankfulness in your heart to God. Why? Because of what he does and because of who he is. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything, look at this, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the context, and in the very next verse, he sets out, wives, this is what that looks like for you. Husbands, this is what it looks like for you. Fathers, this is what it looks like for you. Parents, here's what it looks like for you. Children, here's what it looks like for you. Slaves, bond servants, employees, here's what it looks like for you. Masters, bosses, owners, this is what it looks like for you. But, verses 12 through 17 are what it all hangs off of, to love one another because of the way God has loved you, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there, it's already different. You do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rest of the world didn't say that back then in the Roman culture in the Greek culture and the Jewish culture, and the world doesn't say that now, do they? But what we'll see is Paul always says, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do these things in the Lord Jesus Christ so important to see that, even in your own home, why is that profound, because guess where it's the hardest to love, in your own home, am I right, I can, I can pretend to love all y'all, <laughs> it is hard to love in your own home, nobody's looking, the you know, you're sort of protected, the true self comes out, am, am I right, the authentic self comes out at home, good, bad, or otherwise, and so it's actually in the home where the heart begins to change and you begin to consider others differently. And from the home, and what we'll see in Paul's ordering, it starts in the marriage unit, works out to the kids, works out even to the servants living and working in your home. You see that? In it, But it starts here in the heart first of the individual, the new self that Ryan talked about two weeks ago. Highly recommend going and listening to that sermon. Fantastic. Sermon. You can listen to that online. In the heart, once we put on the new self, then in the marriage, with the children, with the servants, to the rest of the world, we begin to radically change things. So that's the first thing that I want to, to tell you. We're going to read this, and, and it might rub us kind of the wrong way. Some of the things that Paul has to say, because some of the things he say will challenge some of the general notions that are prevalent in our society today. But I want you to hear this. What Paul has to say, particularly to husbands, fathers, and masters, would have been the most provocative, the most challenging, the most revolutionary statements that had ever been made in any code like this to date. Because in that day, if you were a man living in the Roman Empire, you had ultimate authority and power, and no one ever told you you had to do anything that you didn't want to do. It was, they was there's a word for it pater familialis, which is the rights of men and the rights of men were unchallenged I mean you men in that society they would go out take prostitutes sleep with whoever they wanted and their wife was underneath their rule their children were not seen as beloved and joyful they were like property to keep the name going, servants, slaves, well, they were below even children. They were almost considered unhuman. And Paul comes in here, and what he's going to say, and and it might, don't get caught up in the ways this doesn't look exactly like the messaging you're hearing, You need to somehow get back into that moment and and realize the society to which Paul is writing these things and it's absolutely provocative and revolutionary. And listen, listen here to the Christian ethos that pours throughout this whole list of commands to these household codes and rules of conduct. Paul uses the same tone for each and every person he addresses. The, that fact alone that wives are addressed exactly the same as husbands, and children the exact same as fathers, and slaves, that that that, that God, Paul is addressing them as equals is unreal and unheard of. And, and you're gonna miss it. You're gonna miss it because it's 2019. And we're only where we are in large part thanks to Paul, thanks to the Word of God that has broken down over time ungodly institutions and structures and hierarchies that never were meant to exist. This is absolutely revolutionary. In this code, where the patro familialis said, These are the rights of men. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, will say, these are the responsibilities of men. And that seemingly small shift has cosmic consequences. So that's the first thing as way of, I'm going to have to set up a few things here so that you can hear it well. And really come to love what Paul has to say. Because here's the reality. We are always shifting back and forth in understanding how to live in these relationships. Don't think you've just figured it out. We're always trying to figure out what is the right way to live in these most common and most pressing relationships. So, so, So wherever you're at today, wherever this rubs you the wrong way or doesn't push you far enough, just come with humble ears to hear what are you saying to me, God, Because we're always moving and shifting. I'm moving and shifting, trying to understand what are you actually calling me to do and what are you not calling me to do? What does this actually look like? So hear it with fresh ears today. Suspend your judgment as you go through this because there's a lot of messages that we've been taught over the years on either side of the issue. So just hear what's going on. So second point. We need to understand that as Christians, there are three levels of calling. Three levels. There's actually a hierarchy of calling. And the first level of calling is the most important. You have been called by Christ to be a son and daughter in his family. And he has made that possible by the cross and through the resurrection and through sending the spirit that you might know I am beloved because God loves me. That you're called to that. You're called to Christ. That's the first level. It supersedes everything. The second level of calling is what I call general callings. This is callings to Holiness. Obedience to Christ and His teaching, obedience to the Word of God, to general purity in in life, sexual purity, financial purity. These are general callings to all Christians at all times, in all places. And that level of calling is one below being a son or daughter of Christ, that's the, the highest calling. And it's one above what I would call unique callings, the third layer of calling. And this layer of calling includes everything else. For instance, do you have the gift of teaching and preaching? We think Joshua, who preached last week, 22-year-old man in our congregation, we think he has a gift, a spiritual gift to teach and preach. That's a unique calling on his life. Not everybody's called to that. Maybe you have a unique calling to be a mother or to be a father. Not everybody's called to that. Maybe you have a unique calling that is chronic back pain. Serious. That is a unique calling. God is not surprised by that. He could take it away in an instant if he wanted to, and he doesn't. He wants you to live out your general calling of holiness, purity, living by hope and not by fear. He wants you to live that out with chronic back pain. Some of you don't have that calling. Praise God. Thank you to God. Some of you do. What does it mean to live out your general calling as a Christian and, and your highest calling of a son and daughter of Christ with chronic back pain. That's part of your unique calling. Some of you are incredibly good looking. <laughs> Serious. And it's one of the hardest callings you could ever be called to. Because you go out to a bar, and, and seriously, the temptation that comes your way is different than somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mean, like, nobody's talking to me. I, I literally go out every Saturday night to a brewery or something, and I have an adult beverage while I review my notes. It's one of the things I do because the monks did it in years past. So this is what I do. <laughs> literally, I sit there by myself. I did this last night. Hundreds of people walking around. I'm sitting by myself. <laughs> Maybe it's because I have my Bible out. <laughs> you know, Nobody ever comes to talk to me. Some of you don't have that problem. Some of you, you sit down by yourself, and you are swarmed. Hey, how's it going? Hey. <laughs> and i buy a drink. <laughs> that is part of your unique calling. I mean, think of Brad Pitt. You think you could live out your general calling for sexual purity if you were Brad Pitt? Good luck. Ser- serious, you know how hard that would be? It's easy to sit here and say, yeah, I'd have no problem with that because I trust God. That would be so incredibly hard. It's part of his unique calling, but he is called to... He, God has given the opportunity to be a son and daughter, or a son <laughs> of, of God, and it called him to those same things if he chooses to accept the invitation of Christ. That would be so much harder for him than it would be for me. You see what I'm saying? There are so many things that are unique callings to living out the general callings on all Christians, which is what, the, what our part called to all children of God. You see how that works? Guess what else is a part of those callings? Are you a wife or a husband? Are you a father or a mother or a child? Are you a master or a slave? Are you a boss or an employee? Are you middle managed? What are you? All of that is part of your unique calling, and Paul will give us things to think about as we live into those that bring honor and glory to Christ. But we have to see that that's working, and that's not an accident. Otherwise, we'll always try to want to be something that we're not. And we'll miss out on our unique ability to glorify God in our unique calling. Because, you see, if you have chronic back pain and you still can live with hope and optimism for the future, knowing that this is not your only life, that God will give you a new body, you see how that brings glory to Christ in a way that somebody who does not have that physical pain cannot do? Do you see that? So you have to understand it and willingly accept your unique calling, whatever that is. Single, married, Widow, divorced, whatever it is, God has given you a unique calling. He's asking you to live for Christ in everything to paint an accurate picture of who Jesus is. Because each of us, as we'll see, with, with different roles and responsibilities in the family unit, will bring Christ, uh, glory to Christ, highlighting some portion of Christ that the, the others of us can't. If, you, if you're born into uh, an ownership class, if you're born into the royal family of England... You do not bring the same kind of glory that somebody who's born into poverty in England could bring. But both of them, the way they live, can highlight different parts of the love of Christ if they understand their calling and they live it out according to the love of Christ and empowered by the Spirit of God. Maybe you've never thought about it. This is life-altering. So the third point before we even get into these things, is you need to understand what distinction means. There is distinction in this world. There always will be. Jesus said that. The poor will always be amongst you. Doesn't mean you try, don't try to end poverty. It means, guess what? Even if you do, there will always be financial distinction. Some people have more. Some people will have less. So what does distinction mean? Look at chapter 3, verse 11. So one verse before what I just read you about putting on the new self Here's what it says. This is revolutionary. Here there is not, here meaning in the family of God, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What? To put those people in the same list and say you're all equal? Fantastic. So saying distinction, though, Even though he's just said that, he's not in one sentence obliterating the social strata. He's just saying, even though those things exist, you are all equal in Christ. God sees you all exactly the same. So distinction does not mean a lack of equality. So to say there's distinction amongst us does not mean that there's a lack of equality amongst us. Here's a great phrase. Write, Write this down if you're taking notes. Equality, but not equivalency. Equality, but not equivalency. You can be equal, but not equivalent. That's distinction. Distinction is not a lack of power. There's not, like in my marriage, Allie and I have distinct responsibilities and roles and and things that we do. That does not mean that she lacks power. (laughs) In fact, she probably has more power than I do. So, So distinction does not remove power. Distinction is not a lack of power. Distinction is not a lack of influence or purpose. It's not like if there's distinction, it means I can have no influence or no purpose. Absolutely not. Paul has just said that in verse 11. Christ is in all and through all, and what do we bring to, Christ, or to the world? We bring Christ. Influence and purpose, no matter if you're a slave or you're a master. So what is distinction then? Distinction is varying responsibilities. Varying response—that is what distinction is. So everything in verse eleven, chapter three can be true, and still the distinctions we will see that we read in the household code, of verses eighteen through four, chapter one or chapter four, verse one, those can be true. So distinction means varying responsibilities. So important to, to think through as you're trying to understand how do I do this. So you think of a team. Think of a team. We have different roles and responsibilities on a team. Right? You can go to the sports team, you can think of a work team, whatever you want to do, which if accepted and lived into in the te- God's team will reveal aspects of Christ's love and Christ's glory, but, but your abilities are not my abilities. And my abilities are not your abilities. We each have something, or responsibility that Christ has given to us, that if we live into properly, reveal parts of Christ's love for Christ's glory. And if we don't get this, we'll be headed the wrong direction. And this is what I want you to think about. The distinction between effective and successful. Now I'm sort of putting my own definitions on this, but effective and successful. Effective, did I live an effective life, okay? That is answering the question based on the world's definition. Did I live an effective? Am I leading an effective company? What is our bottom line? You could be effective and not be successful. Successful being God's definition. And as we'll see, as unto the Lord in each and every one of these commands upon this different people group within the family unit. So you can be effective and not successful. And there's multiple household codes in antiquity. 2,000 years ago, there was multiple household codes. Today, there's multiple household codes of this is how you live, and this is how you structure your family, and and this is what it means to be a wife and a husband uh, and a boss and employee. And what we have to ask as Christians is not what is effective, because you might see other families who are very effective in things, You have to ask, what is successful? What is God trying to do? And what I'm trying to say to you today is what God is trying to do is give glory to his son, Jesus Christ, through the way you live into relationship. And the world doesn't have that as a part of their definition. So the gospel will subvert all of this. So in each of these distinct roles, we might find ourselves in, in any of these roles on this side of eternity, we must stop and think deeply on this distinction between effectiveness, which focuses on the means, and success, which focuses on the tactics. Let me, this is so important, let me just give you an example. Bosses. There are ungodly tactics that you can use to motivate your employees to an effective business. You can build an empire, but you could be an abject failure in the eyes of God. Do you know that? Does that make sense? You could use fear, pain, unwholesome rewards, bribery. There's all sorts of ways to be effective and people would look at you in the world and say, wow, what an effective business owner. And in the eyes of God, he would say, you're an abject failure. That's terrifying. Employees, the same thing, we'll read that. The longest section in here is about slaves, bond servants, which you could extrapolate to our day and day to be an employee. There are ways that you can get noticed at work, that you can advance in your career by using ungodly tactics. You can fudge numbers, you can just flat out lie, you can steal credit from somebody else who, who it was their idea. And you will get noticed and you will get promoted and you might look like a success and everyone looks, wow, great work, your career looks like it's going great and God looks at you and says, you are an abject failure. Parents, did your kid go to college? What college did they get to? Your kid could go to the Ivy League and graduate with honors and you could be an abject failure. In the eyes of God. Because we have to ask, there's a way to get your kids to do what you want them to do, but is it the Jesus way? Children, there's a way to get your parents to do what you want them to do, but is it the Jesus way? Husbands, there's a way to get your wife to do what you want her to do, but is it the Jesus way? Wives, there's a way to get your husband to do what you want him to do, but is it the Jesus way you see, we've got to have this distinction between effectiveness and successful because you'll look around and you'll say, why are they doing so well? They're so effective in life. In the eyes of God, they are failing. They are not a success. One final cultural caveat. I'm going to read through the list now, I promise. But remember this. Paul is not saying this. Listen, 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 listen. Paul is not saying this. Friends, this is what heaven will be like. Remember, we've talked about this. Heaven is the greater reality that will one day absorb the worldly reality by the grace of God. And Christ says, I wait to do that because I want all to come to saving faith in me before we absorb it and bring the full reign of God back. But Paul is not saying this is what heaven will be like. This is what he is saying. This is what heavenly people live like in these common earthly household situations. You see the difference? It is so important, so important. So you'll see in here, we talk about bond servants or slaves, it could be translated, because in the household, most Roman households in the town of Colossae, uh, particularly amongst the wealthy, had servants or slaves. Oftentimes, it would come through war. They were, they were refugees of war, and they came, and, and this is how they survived. And so Paul Speaking for God is not saying I am pro slavery. Many have argued that. He's not saying that. We say, he could have been harsher on it. He could, have, he could have. He does in other places. But Paul is just recognizing the reality of a broken world. It exists, there are power structures that still exist to this day. But in the household of God, if your house is a house of God, if your household serves Christ, this is how you should live out those relationships, even if it doesn't lead to the freeing of slaves, because maybe that's not best for them. Maybe they, need, maybe they need the safety and security of your family. Okay, so, 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 so Paul and God is not pro-slavery, he's just saying in this life, in this broken world, here's how the heavenly people live in these common household situations. And this I remember this again, again again, as far as we can tell, in the new heavens and the new Earth with Christ, which Christ will usher in one day, there is not only no slavery, but guess what? There's no marriage. And for what we can tell, there, we will not be having more children and raising our children. So these particular commands are, are really, for this moment in human history, doing what? Seeking to glorify Christ, the one who puts all things back together so that every knee may bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and God of all. And people will see that by the way we love each other in the household that is so common to everyone else. But we do something a little bit differently. I mean, this is legit, okay. We are working today. I also want to warn us against a very common, popular notion today. That is this, that, that what we see in the book of Colossians and elsewhere, because this isn't the only place we see this exact same household code for Christians. Just, just, just think about it. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not here to convince you. I'm just saying think about it. But a common notion is that this is just Paul accommodating to the culture of the day so that Christianity doesn't get thrown out with the bathwater. You see what I'm saying? It's like, let's not rustle the feathers. We're already rustling them enough. Let's not over-rustle them. So let's just accommodate to these certain distinctions within the family unit. Now, certainly part of that might be happening, but I don't think in whole. So we can't relativize every part of all these verses and say, well, none of this is relevant for our day and our culture. And let me tell you why. This would be sort of a liberation hermeneutic, meaning, right, like we all agree it's really good that slavery has been abolished and we should fight for that everywhere in the world. But if we say, because of that then, this verse is not, it does not lean on us today like it did back then i think we're making a mistake uh, primarily because i don't think any of us think in this life marriage should be abolished yet even though i just said in heaven we won't marry jesus told us but i think in this life we see marriage as a helpful useful institution so nobody's arguing well since slavery's now gone then now we get rid of marriage at least not within christian circles and i don't think anybody's saying oh you know we should also get rid of this whole thing about children obeying their parents. I don't like that either. Let's get rid of that. Now, some might be, children particularly, are saying that. But you see what I'm saying? Like, if you apply sort of this liberation hermeneutic to everything, I don't think you get to pick and choose which parts of this still exist in our culture. And all I'm saying is not that we can't learn anything from our culture. Or that there were, there were ways in which Paul spoke that weren't necessarily as harsh as he wanted to be or could be, because Paul is definitely pro-abolition. We see that elsewhere. But what I'm saying is, if we just take our cues from the culture's definition of household codes, we're in a world of trouble. If we just say, well, Christians are just supposed to do whatever they did in that culture, right? A world of trouble. What if polygamy becomes really popular? There's a good cha- I think there's a good chance that's going to happen one day. Do we just take that cue and say, well... I guess in the Christian church, all those verses about one wife, one husband, we can get rid of those because we, we go by the way of the culture because that's what Paul did here in Colossians. No, I, don't, I say I don't think we can do it. Just be very careful as you read through this. So, what is God trying to tell us about these distinct responsibilities in the household of God, a household that seeks to serve and glorify Christ? Okay? We're going to finally read them now. We're going to finally read them now. Are you ready? Verse 18, verse 18, throw that one up on the screen. We'll go through them one at a time. I'm going to go through them in the order that Paul, I I wanted to start with husbands, but I'm just going to go through it the way God has ordered it here, okay? Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Give us more, Paul. (laughs) Like, explain, What what does that mean? First thing I want you to notice, you can't see it here. But in the Greek text, the word for wives, husbands, fathers, children, master, slave, each of those is in what's called the vocative case, meaning it's a direct address. So if you're reading in the Greek, you knew it's a direct address. So here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to abstract all the way out and think, generally speaking, wives everywhere. No, here's what he's saying. He's, this is being read in a congregation, and it's vocative. Wives. So if you're a wife in the room, Wives you got to figure this out. What is the word of God telling you to do? Vocative, direct address. Not, let's not put it into some big ideological debate. Wives, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I'm going to do this with each of the responsibilities. One, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to address the distinct calling. Two, the, what does that command actually mean? Actually mean? I'm going to help you try to figure that out. What does it actually mean? Three, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to try to explain why this is so hard. Could we, could we just be honest for a second? The reason it's in here is not because it's easy or natural to our flesh. It wasn't 2,000 years ago. You need to hear this. It wasn't 2,000 years ago, and it's not today. It's in here because it's hard. So what makes it so hard? Let's just admit that because I'm not trying to say any of this is easy. We, we need a supernatural help from God's spirit. That is the spirit of Christ. And what we'll see is when we have the spirit of Christ, we can love like Christ loved. And what I'm gonna show you is that Christ loved in each of these ways that Paul asks each member of the household to love. Christ has already done it, so he knows how hard it is. He knows how hard it is. So you can go to him in your struggle to live a God-glorifying relationship in the household of God or at work, and you can go to him. He knows how hard it is because he has loved this way as a human being walking on this earth 2,000 years ago. It's not an idea to him. He knows it. He put on flesh. He understands. And so that's the final thing I'll show you, how Christ has loved this way and how trying to live this way ourselves will glorify him and reveal him to the world, okay? So wives... Submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, not all women in general. You see that? Wives. Wives. So we have examples in the scriptures of women who were not married. Maybe they were widowed or divorced or just never got married. This is not a command on them. So we have Phoebe, who is a deacon in her church. We have Lydia, who... who, She was the head of her household, and she invited the church in, and and a church met in her house. We have Nympha in the book of Colossians. So there are women who are not called to submit to a husband. And look at the other word, your husband. If you're married, you're not called to submit to every other husband that's in the room. Your husband. So important. Any other husband comes to try to tell you, hey, I'm a husband. Did you read Colossians? Sorry to stereotype with my voice. (laughs) Hey, have you read Colossians? (laughs) Okay, it doesn't matter what their voice sounds like. If they try to tell you, submit to me, because of Colossians, be like, are you my husband? Back off, bro. Now, maybe they have a role or responsibility in the church. Like myself, I have a role or responsibility in the church, but that's not this passage. It has nothing to do with me being a husband. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And this word submit... Also could be translated, be subject to, which I think gives us a better sense. The actual Greek word here, hypostasos, comes from hypo, which means under, and, and, and teso, which means order. So it means to come under the order of your husband. And, and this is where the Greek is important. We don't see it in the English, but the word here for submit is, is in the middle voice. So active, passive. And you have middle. And what middle always means is it's reflexive. Meaning you yourself, wives, choose to put yourself under the order of your husband. So it's personal action. So it's your job to choose to come underneath your husband's lead. You're choosing. This is different than what we'll see the word obey for children and for slaves. That's a different word than submit. So there is this this reality here where it's an active choice that you make as wives to come underneath your husband. And this is a responsibility for every Christian wife. Here's how I prefer to word it. I think this this is better. Wives, vocative wives, empower your husband's lead. Empower your husband's lead. What does that look like? Empower him. This, empowering your husband's lead, it will look different in each and every culture. So the world changes and things change. So I'm not saying be just like a Roman wife 2,000 years ago. But there is a way to empower your husband's lead that will bring honor and glory to Christ Jesus. And so if you're thinking about marriage, don't marry the dude if you think there's no way in God's green earth that I'll ever be able to empower his lead. He's gonna need to be led and I'll lead him. Then he's not the right guy for you. He might be the right guy for somebody else, but not for you. If your heart is not saying, I think, with a little bit of growth <laughs> and a little bit of work and one-on-one uh, time with Pastor Ryan Farrell, I think, <laughs> I think I could do this. I could empower my husband's lead, and that's my desire. If not, don't marry that person, or just don't get married. This is epically hard, and it always has been. That's why it's in here. This is epically hard. Why is it so hard? Men can be slow to act. So you're trying to empower their lead and they're very slow to act men can be self-centered men can be extremely lazy I'm generalizing here but generalities are usually based in some reality men are incredibly insecure it is very hard to follow an insecure leader is it not and men I believe more than women are incredibly insecure you don't believe me just see how hard they try to act like they've got it figured out. That's because they're so terribly insecure. And men can be terrible communicators. How do you, how do you follow somebody without communicating? This is where we're going. And, and finally, men can be so childish. You could even call them man agers. It's like they look like a man, <laughs> they've gone through puberty and they have a job and all this stuff, but they act like teenagers. That's a lot of men I know. So you see how hard this is? So why does Paul say, as is fitting in the Lord? If it's so hard, why don't we just not do it? Because there's something about empowering the lead of, of, of someone who's hard to follow. There's a challenge to that that is fitting in the Lord. It fits Christian wives to seek to empower your husband's lead. And guys, this is not legalism. This is, we're trying here, okay? No one's ever saved by doing this. This is just once you've been saved by Christ, by his grace, you try to do these things. It fits those of us who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And why does it fit us? If we're a wife in the room, it fits us because this is what Christ himself did. That's why it fits. You've put on Christ, So you put on this, and your distinct responsibility is to reflect this part of Christness. When you, by choice, voluntarily come under your husband's godly lead, I I think this verse also teaches you don't lead him into sin. You don't follow him if he's taking you someplace that God forbids you to be. So when you follow your husband's godly lead, as we'll see in verse 19, he should be loving you in such a way that he wants what's best for your family and for you. If you come under his lead in that and patiently wait on him, you are reflecting the character of Christ and the nature of the gospel itself to those around you because you are doing what Christ did. You love like Christ, you submit like Christ, so that you might glorify Christ. Because what did Christ do? The Son of God willfully chose to follow his father's lead. Did he not? Have you read the gospels? He, time and time again, says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only I go to the Father. I sp- Joshua talked about it last week. I spend time with him. I hear his voice. I do what he has told me to do. I follow and empower the Father's lead. It's his plans, and I seek to help him accomplish those. And it was hard for Jesus, was it not? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's literally uh, crying blood, sweating blood, because of the agony of which it means to come underneath the father's lead, that is leading him to the kind of sacrifice that we can't even comprehend, but he willfully followed. And he patiently waited time and time again, not just in that one moment, but time and time again. Now, the father is not lazy or self-centered or insecure, okay, so I'm not saying that. But I guarantee you, Jesus in his humanity, waiting upon God, thought at times, what's taken so long? Let's, let's do it. How long do I have to sit here and take this abuse? How long until you put it back together? And I'm sure there was times where he's like, I wish you could be more communicative with me. Tell me exactly when it's gonna happen because he was fully human. So he understands what it means to long suffer waiting to follow the lead of another. And so when you choose to do that in your marriage, which is incredibly and epically hard, you reveal a part of Jesus and what he is like and the gospel itself to a world that's, that's watching you. let me say this again it doesn't mean that you're powerless do you think christ had no power you're not powerless you're choosing to use your power in such a way that it uniquely reflects the goodness and glory of christ jesus your lord and savior christ did it so you can do it because you have his spirit empowering you and then you got to ask what does this look like I'm not, I'm not giving you that. What does it look like in your marriage? It's not going to be the exact same for all of us. I cannot give you a list of tasks to be accomplished by the wife. And the, that's not what this is about. It's, about. it's a matter of the heart. This is what changes the world. The heart changes the world. Now, this seems too hard. I don't want to do it. <laughs> but remember, this command is not in a vacuum. We've put it on a vacuum on the screen just to isolate it, but it's not in a vacuum. It's meant to function in a dynamic community of people who are all seeking the will of God with their own commands. You see that? So let's look at verse 19. Husbands, husbands, vocative, husbands. I know who you are. Small church, coming to you. Husbands, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh Love them. Love your wife's, your wife well. What is this getting at? See how it's connected to the first. If your wife is going to willfully come underneath your lead, but run if you're going to be harsh with her, because I will come, I'll hunt you down. I, I will break your leg. That's my role as the elder of this church. <laughs> <laughs> Do not be harsh. Why? Let me say this. Remember, you husbands never have, and it's right here in the text, you never have any cause or calling or authority from God to make your wife submit. That power is entirely in her hands. You hear me? Can I have an amen? You do not get to make her submit. That is not what this is teaching. She gets to choose if she wants to, and that's between her and God. You don't get to do that. Your call is to love your wife well. Do not be harsh with her. Or another translation says, do not uh, be embittered towards her. Do not have a bitter spirit towards your wife and treat her as though she's not someone to be loved. And the word love here is agape love, not eros love. So the Greek language is so much better. It has multiple words for love. We only have one. Eros love is like romantic love or sexual love. That's not what it's talking about here. It says agape love. This is the kind of love that God has for the world in sending his, God so agape the world that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. It's also the same type of love that he says, agape your enemies. So your wife's, maybe, maybe she's not choosing to empower your leadership. Maybe she is neglecting you in many ways. Maybe you don't like anything about her. Guess what you do? Just like your enemies, you agape her. And you are not harsh with her. Agape love is action-oriented love, sacrificial, self-giving love. Self-giving. You give yourself to your wife. You see how counterculture this is? If you were in, if you were, you don't get it. If you were in this society and Paul's saying, give yourself to your wife. Read 1 Corinthians 7, just write it down. Read it. Your body is not your own, men. It's your wife's. What? That is so revolutionary. You give yourself. So, this kind of agape love requires your presence. Not just your money, not just your house, not just your protection, but you, all of you, needs to be present with your wife and available to her. This is hard. Why is this hard? Listen, we live in a... We got we to gotta cut it both ways here. Why is this so hard? Well, wives can be really independent. <laughs> they don't always ask for help. They don't always remember. <laughs> wives can be forgetful. You've never done that. You don't, you don't remember the sacrificial action, uh, wives can be stubborn. Wives, the book of Proverbs, that's in this book here, so I didn't write it, says wives can be like a dripping faucet. That's hard to give yourself to. You know what, when you hear a dripping faucet, you know what you do? You want to turn it off. Even, and this is how I do plumbing even if you don't know how to plumb, you turn it off. I mean, you break it if it needs to be turned off, right? Like, it's hard to love your life sacrificially and self-giving. God's not arguing with you about that. He's just saying, in the hardness, this should be your goal, to love them like Christ loved you and gave himself up for you because To love like Christ is to glorify Christ. To love like Christ is to glorify Christ. Christ gave his life for yours. And he took all the steps to loving you without you even knowing it or asking him to do it. Before you asked him to do it. Christ acted with full knowledge that we would misinterpret, ignore, and cosmically underappreciate his sacrifice, and he did it anyhow. You see this? And when you love your wife like that, husbands, you glorify Christ. How in the world can you live like that? How in the world, Ryan, can you love your wife like that? Dave, can you love your wife like that? Joseph, can you love your wife like that? Only because the spirit of Christ lives in me and he did this for me. I don't know how i do it. Praise be to God. It's his grace working through me. You see this? And he experienced real pain, Jesus. And this kind of agape love for your wife, without being harsh, you will experience incredible pain. To the praise of Christ. So let's do it. Now, now, you see, now, this is the hardest one, I think. I got no time for this, but I've been watching Stranger Things lately. i <laughs> have been watching a new season? Great season. And, and, and there's monsters in this show, and it's dangerous. And this is a good way to visualize how this dance works between husbands and wife. Because we see elsewhere that actually husbands are called to submit to their wives as well. What, what does that mean in this context? Here's what it means. Monsters everywhere. Husband's out front. He's looking around. He, he's, it's scary. <laughs> you guys good? Wife, children, servants, you're good? Okay, we're going this way, we're going this way. Here's how it works. Wife comes up behind him. <laughs> No, I'm not. no, no, no. This is the way. No, oh, I mean, seriously, you, you're really bad with directions. <laughs> Trust me here. And the husband can do this. You know, history tells me you're probably right. <laughs> Let's go that way. Now, in our world, in our culture, sometimes this is what we do as husbands we say, okay, I'll just step back here. You just go right here. It was your choice to go that way, so you just lead us right over there. I'll follow right behind you. Here we go. That's not what this is teaching. Here's what it's teaching. Okay, I hear my wife. I submit to her wisdom, her spiritual wisdom and guidance for our family. And so we together make a decision to go there. And instead of saying, well, it was your choice, so you lead, we say, okay, I'm still going to take the lead even though I'm submitting to your wisdom in this moment. You see the difference there? And I think that's where we get it wrong. Or Either the husband says, submit, follow me, and monster gets him. <laughs> or we jump behind our wife and say, okay, here we go. Uh, we'll stay back here. Why don't you just fix the whole problem and then come back to us when you've kind of cleaned that whole, you know, rift in the dimensions. Okay, so we don't do that. We follow together, but there's a mutual submission there, you see? But it still means that the wife is empowering the lead of the husband. It doesn't say, I want to be you, because Christ has called the husband to be the husband. And there's a specific way in which he gives his life for his family that brings glory and honor to Jesus Christ, because it's hard. Children, children, here we go. These last few will go a little bit faster. Children, obey your parents in everything, for it pleases the Lord. In everything, that's the hard part of this. In everything, not just in some things. And look at it, it is pleasing to the Lord. That's why you do it. Not just because it's effective or it works or it's good, gives your family a good reputation of obedient kids. No, you do it because it pleases the Lord. So your obedience, though it's to your parents at a higher transcendent level, it's to the Lord. It pleases Him. This would have been so revolutionary to even mention children in a community. Why do they mention children? This is young children, not like raised children, So they're reading this letter out loud. That means there's children in the public meeting. Totally revolutionary in that day. Children are here? What are they doing here? This is pleasing to God because it's hard, because parents can be ignorant, naive, out of touch. Parents can be spoil sports. Parents can be wrong, self-centered, misguided. Parents can be hard to obey, but God says obey them anyhow because it's pleasing to me because to obey like Christ obeyed his heavenly father is to glorify Christ. You see it? Fathers, parents, verse 21, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Wow. You mean there's a way to parent that's wrong? This is totally revolutionary and new 2,000 years ago. What do you mean? Don't tell me how to, they're my kids, I own them. No. No. You have a responsibility to raise your children to know and love the Lord, but while doing so, do not discourage them. Don't let their spirit be broken. How? By not nagging them, Paul says. That's the sense of the Greek word there. Do not embitter them. Why? This this is the profound part. Because in God's eyes, they are equal to you. They have equal value to you in the eyes of God. So when you discipline them and admonish them, which you must still do, you must respect your children as equals. What? What? Yep, that's what the gospel teaches. This is such a paradigm-shattering reality for this uh, paterfamilialis notion in, in the Greco-Roman world. Fathers were up here, children were way down here, and the gospel levels it and says, no, you still have a responsibility to leave and love and teach them and help them to grow up, but you must do it without breaking their spirit. You must do it in love. Unreal. This, of course, is so hard because children can be a little annoying, a little selfish, a little naive. It's hard, but our children are valuable to God, and we are valuable to God, and so we should see our children as God sees us, and when we do, we glorify God, our Father. Because he loves us like that. What? Okay. I've left little to no time for the longest passage. Read it with me. Verse, starting in verse 22. Bond servants, which could also be translated slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality or favoritism with God. Here's what he's saying. I don't care that they're masters in this life. They'll get what's coming to them. Your job is to work and do your work as though you are doing it for me, as though I am your boss, as though I have asked you to do it. Work hard, this is the command, as if God was your boss. Again, Paul is not pro-slavery here, so if you can get your freedom, Paul will say, take it. But now let's extrapolate to modern day where we most of us aren't in a bond servant situation. And the slavery in this day was not southern slavery, just you've probably heard that before. This is a different bond servants, indentured servants might be a better way to put that, but it was different. It was still not God's ultimate plan, but it was different. So what how does that extrapolate to today? Well, I think this is true of all employees. Work for Amazon? If your name ain't Bezos, in some ways you're a bond servant. How do you treat your masters? Well, obey. And this is a harder command. This is, if they ask you to do it, do it, even if it's a bad idea. We see that Jesus obeyed even unto death when he was wrongly accused and convicted by the authorities of his day. To respect your bosses is hard, they are incompetent at times. They got their power by nepotism. They can be cruel, insensitive, inconsiderate, out of touch with what it means to be a lower level employee. Bosses are really hard to obey, but we must, Paul says, because it glorifies Christ. Because when we obey our authorities in the workplace, like Jesus did with his authorities, that we're over him, we point to a higher authority that governs all authority. So when you work unto the Lord and people say, how do you do that with such a terrible boss? And you say, because I realize there's an authority even over them, that they only have their authority because God gave it to them. You bring honor and glory to the gospel in name of Jesus Christ who did it so well. Masters, Masters, verse, chapter four, verse one. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul clearly disliked human masters of every form. If you just read enough of Paul. This is why he emphasizes, hey, we all have a master. Just so you know, this is a firm and frightening warning here that he's giving to, ma- to masters or people in powerful positions within an organization. And he's purposely being short here and blunt because he's just laying it out there. Y'all have a master too. How do you want him to treat you? Paul's command here to masters could be uh, said just like this. Care for them as if they are your own. Care for them. They live in your house. In this context, they're living in his household as if they were your own children. Care for them. Care for them. This is revolutionary the idea that you would care for those subordinates who worked underneath you. And this can be hard because it's not necessary. That's what makes it hard. They had all the power. You see, what's hard is doing something when you have all the power. They had all the power, and God says, freely give that up and care for them as if they were your own children. Because you have a heavenly master who cares for you as a child. Not because he has to, but because he chose to. Genuinely value the personhood of those people who work underneath you. They're human beings. They're not means to an end. They're human beings created in the image of God. Care for them, Paul says. Many of you in this room, if you don't already have people that work under you, will care for them. They are human beings created in the image of God. They are brothers and sisters in your family. Wives, husbands, children, parents, servants, masters, all take seriously your roles and responsibilities to love like God loves so that you can glorify God as you're meant to. If we do this, the world will see the multifaceted, mind-bending, stone-crushing type of love that God has for all creation. They won't see it if you neglect your responsibility or you try to take on somebody else's responsibility that was never given to you. Look at verse four, chapter four, verse one again. Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. That could be applied to each and every one of these commands. Knowing that you have a father and a master and a savior and a Lord in heaven. This is how I want you to live. If we don't believe that there is a larger reality that presses in on our reality, that there is coming a day where God's reign and rule will be full, as we've studied in Colossians, go back and listen to that if this is your first week. We're gonna miss why we need to do this, why this is so important. So a serious warning here. If in your life you find yourself in a position of any kind of authority or leadership, most of us in this room do or will, or in front of anyone, leading the way for anyone. Maybe it's even in your friend group, you're something of a leader. God is holding you to a very seriously high standard, himself. Terrified yet? And when we look at our heavenly father and we see what he does for those that are underneath him, including his own son, Jesus the Christ, what do we see him doing? Resurrection. Raising him up. Putting him up on high. If God grants you any power or position or privilege or authority over others in your life, whether now or in the future, if you find anybody dependent on you, you have a serious choice You have to contemplate and consider this very clearly. What is my job? Meaning, what is God's calling on my life? He is calling you to raise them up to a place that no one else will. Your job is resurrection too because you are meant to be like your heavenly master or father to make them realize that they're more valuable than, pre- than they previously believed, to help them maximize their gifts and capacities to find purpose and place in this world, to bestow upon them with your own power, your own prestige, your own presence, a kind of glory that rivals your own as given to you by God, but not by the world. That's your job. And if you take nothing else from that, because many of us in this city, in this country, With our educated nature, we will have people who it's our job to raise them up to a place that they never thought they could be seen. And I just want to read for you to to throw us out Psalm 8, because God did this for us. King David wrote these words. He said this When I look at your heavens, God, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you set in place, what is a man that you are mindful of him? And the Son of Man, that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Who who, who am I? God's done that for me. Who is he asking you to do that for? Who are you asked to raise up to a station in life that they never thought was possible? That is your call. Take it serious to bring glory to Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, this is a long list. (laughs) There's a lot of dynamics and relationships that, that probably popped into our mind as we went through that, God, and we just hope and we pray that we might grow, that we might take off the old self and put on the new self that's rooted in the love of Christ. Help us to understand what these words mean to us, not just in the abstract, but what, how do you want us to change in the way we love our spouse, for instance, or our children, or the way we work in the workplace? God, what's amazing about your gospel is that the way that it changes the world is not from the top down. But it's from the bottom up, as you change our hearts and our little family units, as those begin to transform, that you transform the whole world for the good of the world and for your glory. And so we pray, God, that we we would take these words personally and seriously and wrestle with what this looks like in our own life on a daily basis. That's what I love about the household codes. Your household is there every single day, which is why it's so hard to love this way but why it's so essential if we are to be transformed into the image and the glory of Christ Jesus, your son and our savior, in in whose name we pray, amen.